Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. In 2019, Maylee Chapin traveled on a work trip to Nairobi. She was young and working for Google on the marketing team. She was there on a trip to understand digital well-being. Americans were having a conflicted relationship with their phones, starting to feel addictive and unhealthy. People in Nairobi had a healthier relationship, and Maylee was there to try and understand why. Maylee was only supposed to be in Kenya for two days, and on the second day, she crawled into her hotel bed for a midday power nap. She was woken up by a huge explosion. A suicide bomber had detonated his vest in the hotel courtyard. You know, if you can imagine the the horror that you would be looking down on, there were pieces of the suicide bomber. There was smoke, there was blood. It was it was horrific. I'm not sure of a word that that is powerful enough. Maylee looked out the window and saw men with AK-47s. They were firing rounds and walking into the hotel lobby. It was a terrorist attack, and they were there to kill. She could hear the gunshots as they moved in closer, both above and below her. And for 17 hours, Maylee was trapped in her hotel room, certain she was going to die. A feeling that would continue even after her rescue and a return home to the safety of her family. There would be things that would remind me very vividly of the attack, like the sound of a fire alarm or the sound of a firework. And I would, like, hit the floor in the fetal position, shaking and crying. Today on the show, how do we process trauma and how do we heal from it? What are some of the solutions and tools for people living with PTSD on a daily basis. I'm Kimmy Culp, and this is All the Wiser, a show about hope and possibility on the other side of pain. I remember very distinctly, actually, this moment on my couch. I was living in California working at Google, and I remember sitting on my couch in California and thinking... I think I was wrong. You know, I I think this is what life is. It's about getting to the point where you have a steady income and you're going to get to marry the love of your life and you can pay your bills. And, you know, I don't know why I feel like something's missing. I need to accept that that this is sort of the pinnacle of my life and, and this is the state that it will continue to exist in. And I need to stop looking for this missing piece because, you know, what what more could somebody ask for? Towards the end of 2018, Maylee was at a point in her life that most know well, that longing question of purpose. But she had interesting work and an opportunity for an exciting work project in Nairobi. She booked her trip using Google's travel portal and sort of waited it out 
to see if anyone would contact her about security. But she didn't hear anything. The only thing she had was Google's international security number saved in her speed dial from her last work trip to China. But this time, for Kenya, there was no safety briefing, which left her with a lot of questions. So... I talked to some of my colleagues at Google and said, you know, to be honest, I'm a little bit nervous. I'm, I'm 26. I'm traveling by myself as, as the only Google employee. I don't really know the protocol. Um, am I supposed to have a driver? Am I supposed to have like a, like a bodyguard? Are these dangerous areas? I, I really don't know. And so they recommended that I reach out to the security team and ask those questions. So I reached out to Google's security team and I said, hey, you know, these are my, my details and uh, the external research agency has uh, some connections in Nairobi and they recommended that I stay at the Kempinski Hotel, which is what I booked. Um, anything that I need to know, need to do, need to have, etc. They did book me a driver and that driver had like a particular password so that I could confirm that he was my driver once I landed and he would be waiting for me at the airport. And then they told me that they recommended that I change my hotel actually in addition to sending me a a short sort of security briefing document. In that short briefing document, um, it basically boils down to, you know, for any Google employee traveling to Nairobi, like it wasn't specific to me, the greatest threat to you is like a traffic accident or, you know, a, a mugging. Um, So don't go down dark alleys by yourself. Don't be out at night by yourself, things like that. And then there was one line that said that there is a latent but credible threat of terrorism. But overall, the country was marked low risk. And so I, I didn't even think twice about it. And in that short briefing document, they said that the Kempinski didn't have adequate setback from the road. And so they recommended that I move to a different hotel that was sort of safety verified on their list. And that is how I canceled that reservation and switched to the Ducit D2, which is funny because it's one of those moments you look back on that it was so innocuous at the time, but changed the whole trajectory of, of my life. And I should say, this this hotel is a five-star hotel. Presidents yeah. have stayed there, you know, <laughs> dignitaries. This is a really nice hotel, right? That you're So I would imagine there was a certain sense of safety that you're staying somewhere, that dignitaries yeah. and, you know, presidents have stayed in the past. Both hotels, you know, the Kempinski and the Ducit D2 were known for being very, very high-end great accommodation hotels, uh, as you said, where, where people had stayed. And I think that I did feel safe, but also there's this inherent sort of privileged concept of safety in my head at that time, right? I'm American. I'm traveling with Google for a work trip, going to a five-star hotel, right? They told me the worst thing that's going to happen is I'll get in like a traffic accident or, or someone will steal my laptop, right? It, it, there was some hubris to it, right? Like the the idea that I could be in danger really just didn't penetrate my psyche at all at that time. And of course, now I know that because the hotels were so nice, that's what makes them a target, right? They're full of quote unquote, high value Western targets, if you look at it from the perspective of these extremist groups. So it's a it's a crazy sort of alteration in in my perspective. 
Well, as I was saying it, right, and referencing the people who stay there and the fact that it's five star, I was thinking (laughs) out loud about the presumption of that, that somehow that means you're safe or the property is safe by virtue of those things. And fundamentally, I I guess thinking out out loud, we should know that's not the case. And and your experience certainly validates that that is, is not true. And yeah, perhaps, yeah. as you said, um, you were much more of a target. But, yeah, but I, yeah, it's I, very American. <laughs> yeah. I am um, curious about your conversation with the driver. Yeah, you know, I, I think that you probably have painted a very good picture of who I was. Hopefully, for listeners, right? You can understand. You've got this very inquisitive young woman who really deeply wants to understand people's lives. That's that's still my favorite activity. And so I was chatting with my driver constantly, like, how many kids do you have? What is their schooling like? What's technology like in your life? What kind of device do you have? Do you travel, right? Like, I wanted to know everything about his life. And he was a a really good sport about it. And we got into this conversation the morning of the terrorist attack. He was driving me to and from lunch. And he was saying that it's difficult to live in a region with a constant threat of terrorist activity. And I remember being so struck by that, like shocked. And and I'm sure that one line flitted across my mind, latent but credible threat of terrorism. And, you know, I, I really wanted to understand what he was talking about. And I was like, I'm so sorry. I'm so embarrassed. I really don't know the history here. Can you um, help me understand? And you know, he referenced Westgate Mall, which I knew somewhere in my psyche was this horrific terrorist attack, but I didn't really put together that that had been in Kenya and and the university that had been attacked as well. And he was saying, you know, the threat is ever present because the Somalian extremists are retaliating for Kenya's sort of activity in Somalia, trying to suppress the extremism. And so they target these, again, quote unquote, high value places in Kenya to inhibit travel because that is really makes up so much of the Kenyan economy, right? Tourism. And if Westerners don't want to come here because they're afraid of terrorism, then that depletes the Kenyan economy as well as making the citizens obviously extremely fearful. So I just remember thinking like, I don't know how you get out of bed and go to work every day. It seems so terrifying. Like it seems like it would the fear would paralyze you if you felt like any moment, any day, any restaurant, any mall, any any hotel, any you know driving destination that you're taking a client to could be the next target. It just seems so terrifying. And to live in a constant state of hyper vigilance, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And and have yeah. how heartbreaking that is that that so subconsciously or consciously people are forced to live that that way exactly. day in and day out is is yeah. heartbreaking to, to think about. Yeah. So to the extent that you're comfortable <laughs> going back and, and revisiting, it was 17 hours, is that right? That's right. Yeah, for me, it was 17 hours. Yeah. Starting at the beginning when you first hear an explosion. And yeah, I, I have a lot of questions. <laughs> sure. 
But if you can start when you first heard the explosion. Yeah. I was supposed to be at an interview with a family in Nairobi when the attack unfolded. And unfortunately, I hadn't really properly understood the extent of like dead stop traffic in Nairobi in the middle of the day. And so I thought we were like 30 minutes from the next interview after lunch. And in fact, we were two solid hours from the interview because of the traffic. And so I realized that we were going to be an hour and a half late to what was slated to be a two hour interview. And, you know, at that point, it just feels rude. I'm not going to walk in with 30 minutes left and, and start asking my questions. So I was like, okay, I'll let the research agency handle that one without me, I guess. And I will head back to the hotel and, and try to get a nap. It was really, really jet lagged on, on that side of the planet. And we were all supposed to get together for dinner that evening. And I figured I'd get sort of the rundown then. So I asked my driver to please take me back to the hotel instead. And we did. And he dropped me at the front door. And when you're walking into this hotel, first, it might be helpful for people to understand that it's a whole complex. So there's sort of one way in that leads you to not just the Ducet D2, but also a bank and a jewelry store and a bunch of office buildings. So there's a whole complex back there. So you drive sort of through it and then up to what's sort of like an awning where you get dropped off. And then there are metal detectors. So every time you come into the hotel, you have to go through metal detectors. And, you know, hotel staff is out there working the metal detectors. And I was, you know, chatting with them and then came through the lobby, waved to the folks at the front desk and uh, went up to my room on the third floor. And my room was very, very close to the elevators and the big stairwell that ran sort of next to the elevators as well. And I went into my room and I was only scheduled to be in Kenya for a total of two and a half days. So uh, this was my second day and I was going to leave the next morning. I was supposed to fly from there to South Africa. And I figured, well, I'm here. I'll get all packed up. I'll put my things by the door and I'll take a nap, go to dinner and then get up in the morning and, and head out. So I, uh, I crawled into the bed in the hotel to take a nap or try to take a nap and it really, you know, I don't know if I sort of shortened this timeline in my head, but it really felt like it was just about the moment that my head hit the pillow, that this explosion shook my world. It, it shook the building. It shook my bed. It shook like me, like rattled my body. And it is something that even to this day, even having written a book about it is very difficult for me to put into words what it's like to have an explosion that size go off that close to you in a situation where you know that that should not be happening, right? And I, I knew instantly that basically that I was in danger. There was no conscious thought. I just ran to the window because I knew intuitively that the sound had come from that direction my window looked down on the courtyard. And so I wrenched the curtains open and I looked down at this scene of uh, horror, devastation. I, there's not a word, tragedy. And I, I do really remember that the only thing that my brain could compare it to was a movie. I remember thinking like, I don't know how, but I'm looking at a movie set because 
it had been a suicide bomber was what had happened. A suicide bomber had detonated a suicide vest just there in the courtyard. And, you know, if you can imagine the horror that you would be looking down on, there were pieces of, of the suicide bomber. There was smoke, there was blood. It was, it was horrific. I'm not sure of a word that, that is powerful enough. And I imagine you're, your brain has never seen that. It categorized it. Exactly. So you're trying to have an association or make yep. meaning and it and it doesn't exist. That's exactly right. And that was the feeling. I mean, like literally physically, I thought that there was no way that my eyes were seeing what what was in front of me. What happens next? I imagine fight or flight, but... What do you do next? What happens next? The thing that triggered me to move from the window was that I saw the gunman coming in. So I saw two terrorists armed with AK-47s walking through the courtyard and uh, firing intermittently. And um, Into your hotel, into the building you're yeah. in. Yeah. Into the courtyard, basically, yeah. And I knew, no conscious thought, but it was like, you definitely don't want these men to look up and see you standing here, right? So I whipped the curtains closed again. And that was the first moment that like a thought really processed, which was, these are terrorists. And and I think I could only truly have that thought because of the conversation I'd had with my driver literally that morning. These are terrorists. This is exactly what he was talking about. They're here to kill us. And so they will. That was literally the end of the thought to me, right? It, what am I going to do? And so I thought I've got to say goodbye. I've got to tell my parents and my fiance that I will never see them again. So I, I ran for my phones. I had two phones at that time, a work phone and a personal phone. And as I mentioned, um, because of that trip to China, I had the international emergency Google hotline saved on my work phone. So from that phone, I started to connect to that number. And from my personal phone, I texted my parents, just saying there's a terrorist attack on the hotel. I love you. And I texted my fiance and I I remember this brief moment, it was probably a couple of seconds in reality, but it felt like time slowed down. And I remember looking at the screen and thinking, like, those words are so hollow in this moment. That is so, does not convey the magnitude of how much I wish I was safely in the arms of my fiance, you know, in the home of my parents safe, having a conversation with them, you know, all the millions of moments that I took for granted my whole life. It was just, it's just that I only had two seconds to say something. And so that's what I said. And so for my fiance, I just added, I added like a modifier, you know, like, I love you so much, or I love you more than anything. And I sent it and I thought, well, that is my last act on this earth. Like that's the last thing I'll do is, is say, say my goodbyes to my loved ones. And that was when, uh, the Google security folks picked up and I started talking to them and would be on and off on the phone with them almost the entirety of the next 17 hours. And you, 
on the phone, Google security, reach or connect with a woman named Melissa. And the role she played was so multifaceted, right? Mentally, emotionally, tactically. So tell me, you know, about that conversation. Well, first of all, you know, what's happening to you physically and emotionally, and then about Mm. connecting with Melissa and how she Mm. starts to play a role in this whole experience, a pivotal role. Yeah, yeah, pivotal is, yeah, absolutely correct. Physically, what's happening in my body at that time is actually, I'm now people will say it's not just fight or flight, it's fight or flight or freeze, right? And I was very much frozen to the spot. I was so panicked. There was no conscious thought left for me. It was like, I said my goodbyes and now I'm out. I'm out of ideas, I'm out of thought. And so I was like physically rooted to this spot. I was just standing there where I had picked up my phones in the hotel room. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't ducking, but I could hear the gunshots. I could hear grenades outside. And I, I knew that they'd be getting closer, right? That the terrorists would be getting closer. And that's when I it just like the panic overtook me completely. It was like, I was able to get that one thing done. I had to say my goodbyes. And then I was totally victim to the panic. And I think that's because I, I didn't know what, to do, right? (laughs) Like I had no training for that kind of situation. I had no experience with that kind of situation. And so I just remember standing there and I remember thinking very explicitly that I'm actually going to die before the terrorists get to my room of a heart attack. Like my heart was pounding so hard. It was physically painful and I was shaking and my hands were shaking so badly. It was like difficult to dial the phone. That was the thought. I remember being like, wow, I'm going to die. And in a way, it felt merciful to me. I was like, my heart is going to give out, but at least then I won't be violently murdered by strangers. So that's what I remember sort of feeling in in my body. And emotionally, I don't know if it's truly sort of a, a first order emotion, but I just felt terror. And I know that's perhaps apt because I was in this terrorist situation to feel terror, but it was a type of terror that I have never felt before or since. Like I, I can't explain what it's like to be standing there waiting for total strangers to come end your life violently by yourself on the other side of the world in a hotel. Like it's, it's just, I just wouldn't, I wouldn't wish it on anyone. I was, I was frozen with fear. Well, you're basically a sitting duck, right? Eventually, yeah, they're yeah. above you, they're below you, and they're there to kill. They're there Literally, to, to yeah. kill you. Yeah, and and you know, I remember moments later, I remember having the thought that it was a good plan. Like I was thinking about, oh, there's that one drive into the complex, and you know, we're all locked in our hotel rooms, like on multiple stories of this building. Where are we going to go, right? And, and I didn't know how many of them there were. So it felt to me like there were 50 terrorists, right? Like for all I knew, they had surrounded the building. They had cut off the exits. They were coming systematically to go through every door on every floor. I had no idea. So yeah, it was very, very deeply, viscerally terrifying. And Melissa is <laughs> on the phone with you. What is she advising guiding you to do because as we said she's truly your your lifeline and as you said you're frozen so she's really giving you the the directives 
Exactly. And I think the thing that is hard for me to put into words about Melissa is you said it well, that sort of the relationship that we developed was very multifaceted. And that was so important. She seemed to understand intuitively that I was frozen on the spot, or at the very least that the first thing she needed to do was give me like tangible action items, right? So her first goal was to make it look like no one was inside the hotel room. So that if the terrorists were coming by looking for, you know, signs of people being inside, then ideally they're going to skip that room. So she had me turn all my lights off. She had me barricade the door with any furniture that I could move to, again, hopefully prevent entry by the terrorists. And then she had me look for a hiding spot. And she was like, what is the best possible hiding spot that you can think of inside of that room? And I remember feeling like like it was almost kind of her to give me a task that I could actually do, to give me a way to hopefully contribute to my own survival, right? Because I had gone from this state of like completely frozen, there's nothing I can do, to like, okay, there is something I can do. I can find a really, really good hiding spot. And I have just enough cognitive capacity to do that with all of the fear that I'm feeling. And so I, it's hard for people to picture sometimes, but um, basically there was like a, a vanity under the mirror in the bathroom and it had shelves and the bottom shelf had towels. And so I pulled the towels out and I crushed myself, my body sort of into this bottom shelf in what might look like a sort of contorted, twisted version of the fetal position. And I, like, I really didn't fit. I I very much barely fit. And I bruised, (laughs) bruised a lot of different parts of my body doing this. And then I pulled the towels back in after me so that it just looked like a shelf with towels on it. And what I remember thinking about that hiding spot was that it didn't look like a person could fit there. And so that's why I really liked it. And then I was also sort of relying on this movie trivia of like, where do people usually hide? Oh, under the bed, in the closet, right? I don't want to be in any of these stereotypical hiding places because those are too obvious. So that that was what I went with. And then something dawns on you once you're <laughs> in there. Yeah, this is a moment I still think about all the time. I crush myself into this shelf and I pull the towels back in and I I have almost a small moment of like victory of like, there's no way, right? No one could find me in here. You'd have to be searching, methodically searching every single room. And, and ideally, you know, they're not doing that. So they'll never know I'm here. And that thought ruined everything because it was immediately followed by if they come through my door, I barricaded it. And so they absolutely know that someone is in this room and they will search it methodically until they find me. And I was this like immediate, overwhelming sense of hopelessness of just like, it was almost silly that I thought that I could do something to contribute to my survival. Of course, there's nothing I can do. Of course, they'll find me. Of course, they'll know I'm here. Of course, they'll kill me. And... At one point, you talked to your family, is that right? Yeah, I only texted with my family the whole time, which people sometimes think is strange. But over audio, I spoke almost exclusively to Google. And my family, I I was in touch with over text. 
emotionally, what <laughs> role, what support are they playing with you, for you? Emotionally, particularly for my relatives, I was, I don't know that I'd say I was supporting them, but I was very much not letting on how frightened I was. I was giving them updates. Here's what I hear. Here's what I see. Here's where I am. But, you know, I wasn't saying I'm terrified. I'm shaking. They're going to kill me because I felt like that was, I, I felt like that would have been selfish. There was nothing that they could do. What was the point of telling them how afraid I really was? You know, because all that was going to do was spread that fear. It was going to make them feel what I was feeling. And I didn't want that for anybody. So it was really, you know, when you talk about a, emotional support, that was really Melissa. Melissa was a big part of that. She was the one who understood the the fog of the panic and how difficult that was to think through and to live through. And so she was the one doing almost what I know now to be like these very typical therapy-based grounding exercises. She'd have me, you know, name things that I could see around me, or can you find something green that's in the room? Can you take a deep breath? And that was, that was really critical. Do you think help is coming? (laughs) Um, Depends on the moment that you asked me. I remember saying to her over and over and over, isn't someone coming to help us? And that, that's still hard for me to say, like that still brings tears to my eyes. And, and when you think about this mentality that I had at the time that was so, you know, I I thought of myself as being very immortal, not consciously, but that's just how I lived my life was like, I live a very safe life. I'm safe. Of course I'm safe. That was the second part of it, right? Like I'm in vast mortal danger. Someone's coming, right? Like someone's going to do something about this because, you know, I think that if this experience had happened to me in the U S that would have been my response. I would have expected someone to respond. And so it was sort of a a sense of incredulity. Like, isn't anyone going to do something about this? And I don't know, you know, in in sort of an abstract sense, I don't know who I thought would come, the police or the special forces, I don't know. But I remember her, she was able to tell me in the beginning that like the response force hadn't uh, arrived yet. And I remember that being really shocking. Like, how is this just going on and on while they're literally murdering innocent people? And no one is here to do anything about it. And at one point, you fall asleep. And then at one Mm -hmm. point, it gets quiet and you hear birds chirping. (laughs) Yeah. I will never forget that moment. Um, I, I wish that I could explain. I wish that people could sit in that moment with me for just a second. Because to be in the midst of this kind of horror and for it to go quiet, not for very long, right? It was never ever quiet for very long. Um, But at that point, the fire alarm was off, the grenades and the gunfire stopped just for like 20 minutes for whatever reason. And there was a tree in the courtyard, not far from my room. And the birds, I suppose, settled into the tree and started chirping. By this point, the attack, it had started around 3.30 p.m. the previous day. So it had already lasted all the way through the night. And it was um, like sunrise, basically. And the birds in that tree started chirping. And I could hear them very clearly from inside my hotel bathroom is where I was. And it was something 
just bizarre, even in that moment. It was like this reminder that there was a whole world out there that was going on as usual. At one point, you considered taking your life. Yeah. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. Um, I touched briefly on this idea that that if I had died of a heart attack, it would have almost seemed merciful, right? So it was a similar thought. This was several hours in, and I had gone through many iterations of this emotional turmoil. Help is on the way. Help is at your door. Go prepare to answer your door. They're going to extract you. Oh, wait, no, they're not. Oh, they might not come at all. Oh, they, they might be several more hours. We don't know when this will end. We don't know if you'll live, right? Of like hope and then hope being snatched away. And, and it was physically, mentally, and emotionally exhausting in a way that is, you know, I I don't know that I've felt exhausted in that way ever since. And so at one point I'm incredibly jumpy, I'm nervous, and I'm out from under the shelf. I'm sitting on the bathroom floor with my backpack on, like ready, literally ready for this help that's, you know, may or may not be at my door to extract me. And I hear, you know, another gunshot or another grenade and I turn very rapidly And I didn't think about the sort of extra width that my backpack was taking up. And so there was a glass water bottle sitting on the floor next to me and my backpack made contact with it and it fell over and it shattered across the shower floor in the bathroom. The first thought was, I have just given away my position, right? Everything has been about try to make it seem like no one is in this room. I just made what sounds to me like, you know, an incredibly loud noise because I'm so on edge. So it feels super, super loud to me. And I think I've just given away my position. And I, I remember, I remember the thought not being, I'm going to die. I remember the thought being, I just forfeit my life because I made that noise because I was careless. And again, it's one of these things that like, this commonplace event, oh, I knocked something over and broke it, becomes the center of your universe, right? Like that was the center of my universe. I couldn't believe that I had done something clumsy enough that it might draw the terrorist's attention to my location. And so I'm, I, it's like a clock starts in my head. I'm like, well, what, they'll be here in under a minute, I have to imagine, right? And so I'm looking at these shards of glass on the shower floor and I think, you know what? (laughs) I'm just done with this. I'm just done. Like, I'm done waiting for them to kill me. I'm done being this victim. I'm done being told that I'm getting saved. Like, I'm just done. And I look at these shards of glass and I think, this is a weapon. This is something I didn't have until right now in this moment. And I can't stop AK-47s with a shard of glass. But what I can do is I can end my life. I can take that away from them. And I felt very defiant in that moment. I thought like, I'm dead either way. And so at least this way, I chose it. At least this way, they don't celebrate murdering me. At least this way, there's no risk that I get kidnapped and raped and tortured and beheaded on video, right? I was like, I'm just done. And so I thought, as soon as I hear them at my door, I'm going to slip my wrists and I'm going to bleed out. I'm going to die. I'm going to take that back because it wasn't about maybe I can survive if I don't. It literally was, I am dead. This is the end of my life. And so the very last choice I have on this earth is 
how, how I'm going to die. And I thought I'd rather do it myself. Well, I imagine it's almost a moment of taking control because everything. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's like control in a very out-of-control situation. Yes. You know, real control yes. would have been the ability to leave or, you know, to survive. But it was like this sort of symbol of control in a worst-case scenario. Well, you know, I want to talk about the rescue. But before, I just want to say that understatement of the year. But I am so, so <laughs> sorry that you had this experience and all of it. It's... It's heartbreaking to think about you in that bathroom. I appreciate that. I think that, I think the thing is, and I hope that, that anyone with any familiarity with my story knows this. I am finally at the place in my life where I can say that I wouldn't take back what I've gained from that experience. If I could make the terrorist attack not happen, of course I would, because so many people senselessly and tragically and violently lost their lives that day. But I survived it. And what I've gleaned about myself and my relationship and my priorities and what I've found in my ability to give this one thing back to the world that I think is my thing that was the piece of my life that was missing before. It doesn't feel like it's missing anymore. Like I wouldn't give that back as hard as the entire thing has been and as grueling and as heartbreaking as you said. So I hope people know that. I hope they don't think I spend my life wishing, being sorry that it happened to me. I'm sorry that it happened, but I'm not sorry for what I've been able to take away from it. When we come back, Maylee receives a phone call that would change everything. Stay with us. For every episode of All the Wiser You Hear, we donate $2,000 to a charity. Today's episode benefits Heroic Hearts Project. Heroic Hearts Project is leading the way in the fight against PTSD. They're helping veterans suffering from military trauma get the help they need with safe, supervised access to psychedelic treatments, professional coaching, and ongoing peer support. You can learn more about Heroic Hearts Project on their website, heroicheartsproject.org. I hope you'll check them out. It's been 17 hours since Google employee Maylee Chapin has been hiding under a shelf in her hotel bathroom while under attack by terrorists who were taking over the building. But something was about to happen that would finally turn the tide. I got a phone call, not on either one of my cell phones, but on the physical, like, in-room phone in the hotel. And there's often, as was the case in my hotel room, there was like a phone by the bedside and then there was another phone in the bathroom. So that phone rang, which also terrified me. I wasn't sure like who in the world would be calling from inside of the hotel, but I, you know, it was like I was on such high alert that it was definitely didn't seem like it could be a good thing. So I did not want to answer it and then had been given the advice to pick it up by, you know, a, a trusted source told me to pick it up if it rang again. And it did. And so I picked it up and 
there was a very, very calm American male voice on the phone. And he knew my name and he was telling me that I was doing a great job and to hang in there and that help would be on the way as soon as possible. And it was startling. You know, I I genuinely was uh, worried that I had started to hallucinate because I didn't think that any of those things could really be happening. But it turned out there was a rescue force on the property and they were contacting the Americans inside of the hotel and helping us stay informed and stay calm. And it was, he said, your floor is secure. And I remember being like, wow, (laughs) sorry, that still brings tears to my eyes. Like, I just remember being like, I didn't even think that was a possibility anymore. I didn't think there was any world in which I was going to be safe ever again in my life. And so it's just this phrase that was so beautiful. Um, I made him repeat it a couple of times. And, you know, he was like, it's still imperative that you stay where you are and that you continue to be holed up inside of your room. But yes, your floor is secure. And I'll never, I'll never, ever forget that phrase for as long as I live. Meanwhile, there was this whole additional thing happening that I really didn't understand until well after the event. But Christian Craighead is a now retired British SAS special operations soldier I'm sure people will make fun of me for saying this, but I've been told that perhaps it helps Americans to understand it's sort of the British version of a Navy SEAL. And Christian Craighead was on the property, and I didn't know that, nor would I have known who he was at the time or anything like that. But um, he had been, as as the story goes, he had been nearby and was made aware that this attack was happening. And he without hesitating, drove himself to the property and started to pull people out, started to clear buildings and started to lead all of the sort of operations against the terrorists. And so he was there for a total of 22 hours and he truly is the reason, you know, when I think about myself lying on that shelf and saying, isn't anyone coming? Isn't anyone coming? he was the answer to that question. Like he came and he didn't have to, Uh, you know, he saved hundreds, like literally when you think about all those businesses, uh, the hotel, he saved all of those people, hundreds and hundreds of people that day. And he gave us all our, our lives back. And so it was so bizarre because I didn't meet him that day. Um, he was busy, (laughs) uh, but you know, I learned about him later and, and the fact that I, I truly believe, I completely believe that I would not be alive without him and what he did that day. So after 17 hours for me, the same voice that had been on the phone was outside of my hotel room door, accompanying a soft knock as if, you know, nothing in the world was happening. Uh, He was saying, Maylee, we're here to get you out. Are you ready to leave? Can you come to the door? And so I went to the door and I'm sobbing so hard that I can barely talk, right? I'm, I'm like beside myself and I'm I start to try to unbarricade the door and then I don't know if I'm allowed. Am I allowed to unbarricade the door? Is that like, do you mean answer the door? Are we cool? Cause they said you got to stay where you are. It's like all these things right are going through my head and I'm 
in addition to that, I've been told they'll have this special password they're supposed to say, and they're not saying this password, but like, I really, really want to (laughs) leave. And I recognize this guy's voice and I just want to go. So I start to answer the door anyway. And it's my last moments on the phone with Google's security line. And at this point, it was no longer Melissa because they take shifts. But the, the person I was on the phone with at that time was saying, absolutely not. Do not open your door until they've said the password or like otherwise identified themselves. And so... I say something like, can you just, can you just tell me who you're with through the door? Like, you know, identify yourselves as like American military or, you know, whoever you are. And instead, and I'm literally, I've hung up with Google and I'm reaching for the doorknob to open the door. And this voice, this sort of husky voice that I don't recognize that is American growls back through the door or something like, um, don't worry about it. And it was so absurd. It was just so ridiculous that my hand sort of snapped back. It didn't open the door. I was like, what? That's reassuring. And, uh, yeah, exactly. And the other guy, and it you know, it was probably true. I didn't need to worry about it. They were going to save me. It was fine. There, so there were two men outside my door. And the, the guy that I had been on the phone with said, I'm really sorry about that. Mainly we're with the embassy. And maybe it's crazy to people. But I remember thinking, like, sure, good enough for me. I really would like to leave. And I wrenched the door open. And there they were, ready to extract me from the property. And it goes, you also described the leaving was like, a scene Surreal. out of a movie. So can you explain that scene? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's hard, I think, for people to visualize what a hotel building would look like after this sort of long-lasting, very violent, explosive situation. It was like this, it looked like Armageddon. It looked like the end of the world. It, it was abandoned. It was covered in broken glass. Everything that I expected to see intact was no longer intact. People always ask me if I saw bodies in the lobby. I didn't. But I also had been told by Melissa many hours before to stare at my shoes. She was like, when you're being extracted, you've seen, heard, felt enough. Just look at your shoes and try not to look around you because it's a really horrific scene. And so I really tried to do that on my way out. But it was, yeah, it was the aftermath in the movie that I had seen begin 17 hours before. And I want to jump ahead. I know you're at that point taken to the U.S. Embassy, and eventually you make it home, you survive. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you've said that terrorists are pretty good at their jobs. Clearly, the terror of that moment and the ripple effects, the families who lost loved ones and the trauma that so many endured. But the trauma, to some extent, is just beginning for you. And that is the heart of your work and your service today. So Mm -hmm. how is it showing up in your day-to-day life? You know, the thing that I always think about with that part of the experience is that I didn't see it coming. That's, I think, what was so difficult about it for me, what was so shocking for me. I, I remember thinking, like, I did it. I made it. Somehow, um, beyond any likelihood, I survived and I get to go back to my family and I get to go back to my life and I get to go back to my job. And then when I got home, I was okay for a couple of days. I was sort of in shock for a couple of days. It still didn't feel real. And then the very first symptom that I had that I would then have for a very long time was I was trying to go to sleep in my 
what's sort of a guest room, but the room I was staying in at my parents' house, I was trying to go to sleep one night and I started to panic. I like my heart started slamming back to that. Like it, it hurt. My heart was pounding so hard. It hurt. And my hands started shaking and I started crying and sweating. And I, I was lying there and I was listening for an explosion. I was not thinking, you know, about where I was or, or, you know, whether or not I was safe. There was no like conscious thought. I was waiting for a massive earth shattering sound that would sound just like the one that I had heard in Kenya. And I, I had to get up, I had to get up out of bed and I was crying. And my then fiance, my now husband was asking me what, what was happening. And I didn't know, like, I, I didn't know what was happening to me. I didn't know why that was happening. And, and I was very shocked by it. And so I started to have a lot of difficulty going to bed. And when I could go to sleep, I would have very vivid nightmares of terrorism. And so I was suffering from insomnia. I was suffering from nightmares. And then I started having panic attacks. So there would be things that would remind me very vividly of the attack, like the sound of a fire alarm or the sound of a firework. And I would like hit the floor in the fetal position, shaking and crying. And I felt very outside of myself. I, I felt like I didn't know who I was. I didn't know why this was happening. I couldn't focus. I couldn't work. I couldn't sleep. I didn't feel like I was in control of my emotions. And then all of those effects together started to manifest as this like deep, deep rage, which is something that I really never have otherwise dealt with in my life. I'm like a pretty upbeat person and I was so angry. I was so angry at the whole world. And I would just scream at my loved ones. It was like anything they said, I would say, how dare you? And you can't possibly understand. And, you know, and, and then, and then I would feel like, like I didn't even deserve to have my family back. Right. All I wanted was to get my family back. Now here I am and I'm screaming in their faces because they're trying to help me. Um, and so then I would go into these long like spiral sessions of just like guilt and shame and I would just sob and sob and sob. And I just remember thinking like it became this thought all the time in my head of like, I didn't deserve to survive this. I should have died there. Everyone would be better off. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds like all of it, guilt shame, and that going back mm -hmm. to the driver, the constant hyper vigilance and fear, which must be mm -hmm. just exhausting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exhausting is right. And and I try to when I try to explain it to people who haven't experienced it, I say first imagine that you're sleeping like two hours a night, best case scenario. And then imagine that you're deeply convinced that everything and everyone might suddenly become very dangerous, right? You know, the only safe place is sort of this one corner of your apartment. So you can't go to the gym and you can't go to the grocery store and you can't go to work and you can't focus for more than a few minutes without having an extremely vivid flashback. And by the end of the flashback, you're shaking and sweating and crying. And then in the rare moments of lucidity that you do have, you're thinking, I don't want to be this person. Like, is this who I am now? I, I, I don't want to. When I, when I was fighting for my life, when I was begging the universe to let me survive, it was to be the person that I was before the attack, not this sort of messy, 
I felt very like dilapidated, very down on myself, very depressed. Like it wasn't to be this, this like shell of my former self. So what's the point? That was like really, really the struggle at the time. And you also talk about this notion of the world being unsafe, which becomes Mm -hmm. your new reality and how that leads to cutting yourself off from this unsafe world. You know, you said exercise was, but is the gym safe? Well, can I go to dinner? If I go to dinner, I need to find the nearest exit. So your world starts to shrink, which I imagine exacerbates the depression, the isolation, the... Exactly. And so that input of joy, of connection, of community is getting smaller and smaller as a result of the trauma. That's exactly right. Yeah, and you think about just just start from one belief, right, that we've discussed repeatedly so far. I believe that when I travel for work and stay in a five-star hotel, I'm safe, right? That was a belief I had never questioned. And that had been so wildly untrue that that's what your brain starts doing. It starts going, well, I used to think the gym was safe. Well, I used to think that restaurants were safe. Well, I used to think the grocery store was safe, right? And you begin to unpin all of these beliefs and say, like, I don't know anymore. Clearly, I don't have the ability to know what's safe and what's not. So I better just not take any chances. That's what it starts to feel like. And and you're exactly right. That means you're not seeing friends. You're not doing the things you love. You're not getting, you know, for me, like exercise is the thing still very much to this day that sort of keeps me sane. I always say it like makes me a better person. And I wasn't getting that right. And I wasn't getting to work. And it's so like, in addition to losing stimulus and losing connection and losing all of these pieces of your world, you also very much lose your identity. And that was so, so difficult. So the path to healing, surprisingly, or I would say I I, I found it to be really interesting and cool, involves the <laughs> FBI. Who knew? Yeah. Yeah. Um, in what is another sort of absurd moment in what is a life that is much, much stranger than fiction, I guess two things are important to know. The first is that there's a small department inside of the FBI whose duty is to assist American survivors of international terrorist attacks. So like me. <laughs> and and the second thing to know is that they had been made aware of my existence, of my survival long before I was aware of them. And so, you know, when I was still in the hotel, they were already getting updates on me. They knew which flights I would be on back to the U.S. They were tracking everything to make sure that I got home safely. And so they actually come, my victim specialist came to my parents' home in Ohio and rang the doorbell that evening. And my fiance and my brother, I think, went and answered it. And she handed him a, like a, uh, okay, that also makes me emotional still. She handed him like a a care package. And it was, (laughs) it really speaks to the fact that she knew the mental fallout was coming before I did, right? This was a care package of like tissues and water and a stuffed animal and a comforting note. And I remember how important those items became to me a couple days later, but more importantly was this idea that like someone understood, someone must have understood what I'd be going through to have dropped this off. And so her business card was in it. 
and I called her, I think at the behest, honestly, of my family or, you know, I don't remember whose idea it was. And she would come and sit with me in my parents' home in Ohio for hours, just as long as I wanted to sit there as I would cry and say, I don't know what's happening. And I'm having these panic attacks. And she would just sit with me and she would talk to me. And she told me all of these things that didn't feel true at the time, but turned out to be like so accurate. And I still talk to her and she's amazing. And was like this, uh, just like symbol of hope. And I don't know, it was like, she believed that I could live through it. And so I believed it because she believed it. And so she was the first person to say to me, I think that you are developing PTSD and we really need to think about getting you a trauma therapist. And I remember arguing with her. I remember saying, that's ridiculous. I'm not a veteran. I didn't fight any terrorists. I can't have PTSD because that was sort of the limited understanding that I had of PTSD at the time. When of course I did have PTSD and the fact that I couldn't believe that I had PTSD was exacerbating my symptoms. So it was the FBI, it was that group in the FBI that found me my trauma therapist in California, told her to expect my call, then confirmed with me that I had made my first appointment, then confirmed with me that I had attended my first appointment, liked it and intended to go back and then checked in with me periodically throughout treatment to make sure that I was improving, that I was continuing to attend and that I could manage the financial burden. Is someone who has deeply lived it both the trauma and the post-trauma. How do we process trauma and, and how do we heal from it? What is the path to healing? Perhaps for those who are sitting in it and, and haven't taken that first step. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that, and I don't mean to sidestep your question at all. I just want to be super clear that there are so many different paths to healing. And I actually think that's really important to say because it is not one size fits all, right? Like what worked for me may well not work for someone else. So what's so, I think, hopeful about that is that there are so many methods of treatment out there that like, to me, that's so amazing and so important because there is one that can work, right? There are methods of treatment for PTSD that are coming out right now that have a 67% success rate for treatment-resistant PTSD, right? For people who feel that they've already tried everything. So I truly believe that for every person, there is an answer. It's just really different for everyone. What I would say is probably always true is that step one is... <sighs> integrating your trauma into your personality, into who you are, right? How does this affect who I am, what I believe, what I want to do with my life, what I'm able to do physically right now on a daily basis, the mental symptoms and the mental fallout, and then understanding that whatever that means for you, however that trauma is coming to life for you right now, it's not permanent. Whatever method of treatment does work for you, it's going to help you alleviate some of those symptoms. It's going to help you integrate that into who you are and, and move forward with your life. If you feel so incredibly stuck the way that I did, that's a symptom of trauma, right? And that can be alleviated. I don't feel stuck in my life today, but I did at that time. The last thing that I want to say is like, for me, the most important part of trauma therapy. And I did a very sort of classic talk therapy based trauma therapy protocol called prolonged exposure. And it involved talking about what happened to me over and over again, which is one of the only reasons I can do 
things like this. I can talk about it very comfortably now because I had all that experience processing it. And so that made sense to me. One of the things that was so important in my recovery that I didn't realize I'd have to do is grieve the person I had lost, right? I had to grieve the person that I was before the terrorist attack because I could never again be that person. I could never be the girl who thought of herself as immortal or who walked into Nairobi without a care in the world, right? It just wasn't going to happen. That girl can't be the same one who's lived this experience. And so grieving the person that I used to be was this critical, critical part of my recovery and one that I talk a lot about when I talk with other survivors. Well, you know, you've touched on it several times, the identity piece, the loss of your, the only identity you knew until then. And the new understanding yeah. of yourself and your identity. And so I want to talk about your choice to name your brilliant book about <laughs> this messy middle terrorist attack girl, because that's really leaning into the identity. Mm-hmm. That's right. So you do make a conscious choice to name your book yep. and to step into that piece of yourself So if you can touch on that and just the why of that and the process. Yeah, I love and I so appreciate that question. I want to sort of preface this by saying, and I try to always mention this when I'm talking about healing from trauma, the only thing I've ever gone through in my life that was as difficult as the terrorist attack was healing afterward and doing all of that talk therapy and doing all of that work. But I do always say, like, at least for me, the only thing worse than the only thing harder than trauma treatment was living with PTSD. And so that was what made it worth it to go back and do that work over and over. Because at the end of the day, I had a new identity that I love and that I'm proud of. And I was done with trauma therapy and I didn't have PTSD anymore. So it was like all upside, but it was a ton, a ton of work. And so part of that work for me was trying to understand how I wanted to integrate this experience into my life, right? Because I was, again, I was taking control. I was being guided by my therapist. I was learning that I could choose how exactly this experience was going to play a role in my life going forward. And I did, I felt exactly the thing you're talking about. Every room that I walked into, I was terrorist attack girl. You know, if I went to Google, I was the girl who had been in the terrorist attack. And if I went to extended family, I was the girl who'd been in the terrorist attack. And if I attended a wedding, I was the girl who'd been in the terrorist attack. And like, it felt like it was defining me. And I remember saying to someone, you know what? If this experience is going to live at the center of my identity, then I'm going to choose what it means. If I'm going to walk in that room and be terrorist attack girl, I'm going to be really proud of it. And it's going to have a whole meaning to me that I care about that fits with my new identity. And so for me, I wanted it to mean that's that girl who's trying to bring hope and empathy to other people, to other survivors and to their families, because the vast majority of us will go through something very difficult, at least one very, very difficult thing in our lives. And that tends to make us feel alone and depressed and in pain. And I really believe that by getting out there and by putting out my book, Terrorist Attack Girl, and by doing these um, podcasts and interviews, that I can help people feel less alone, people who are in it, people who do feel stuck. 
and that I can give them empathy to know that I was there and know what it feels like and hope that they can heal. And that's what being terrorist attack girl means to me because I get to define it. I love all of that so much. (laughs) I don't want to gloss over how hard the work was and how much you showed up again and again and again on this journey of healing and rediscovery. I'm so glad that the the payoff was there for you. Thank you. I'm really deeply thankful that I had an incredible support system and that I had access yeah. to that type of treatment because most people don't and most people certainly yeah, don't have both Thank you for of saying that. That's so true and for you to recognize that and be aware of it and and have gratitude for it. Yeah. Did you ever meet Melissa or Christian? Yeah, actually I met them both. Um not together, but I met up with Melissa on Google Campus and we had a lunch together when I was back. And I it's almost this funny thing because I think like for me she was my hero and for her I was some version of, you know, a hero to her. I had been the one who actually lived through it and she for me she had been this like all-knowing, insanely calm, exactly what I needed in the moments that I needed it, like disembodied voice. But it was just, it was so special just to sit there with her and like, (laughs) and to see her in the flesh and, and like put this face to this, um, voice that, that is this critical central part of my survival. So that was really special. And it's cool. You know, she's like, it was just cool. She's young and she's a woman and she does this job where this is not her typical day, sort of one of the most extraordinary days of her career and the most extraordinary day of my life. And one of the only people who will ever understand exactly what it was like for me moment to moment because she heard me dealing with it. So that was a really, really special thing. And then... um <laughs> I never thought in a million years I would get to meet Christian Craighead. I became this like super fan, obviously, sort of digitally. The whole internet was like talking about him and trying to figure out who he was. And they knew that he had carried this bag, like kit that had the Blackbeard flag on it. And so I got all this Blackbeard <laughs> flag paraphernalia. And, you know, I became this, yeah, this like super fan. Groupie. Yes, exactly. Became a groupie. Um and I never, I never even thought I would know like his identity, much less get to meet him. But he did happen to retire. And so he ultimately now um, has made himself like a, a public figure. You can look up, you know, he's on Instagram and he's just this like wonderful, crazy, you know, British Captain America type person. And so we did get connected ultimately. And we sat down in a hotel in Washington, D.C. And... <laughs> And I don't, I don't know what you're supposed to say to a total stranger who didn't just save you, but like was literally willing to die to save you across the world. I don't know what you're supposed to say when you meet that person. And I feel like I'm always the person who like says the right thing. I always have the right thing to say, but I just, (laughs) I just grabbed him. Like I just hugged him and I just never wanted to let go because because there were no words, right? There is no version of thank you for giving me my life back. There's no version of like, I don't know you, but you're the reason I got to marry my husband. And you're the reason that my brother 
didn't have to attend my funeral, right? And so sorry. This is like no, I'm crying too. I'm crying with you. I'm sorry. Yeah, (laughs) but they're like happy tears, you know. But it's just, it's so extraordinary. And I think it's so important to why I was able to heal. Because while my view of evil radically was changed that day, my view of good and the goodness of humanity was also radically impacted that day. In that I got to see a total stranger walk in there and save my life. And he didn't have to. And he didn't know me. And he didn't get anything from it. And so it was like, as as much evil as there is in the world and as much evil as humanity can perpetrate, it was so magical. It was so meaningful to know that we can put out just as much, if not more good. Like that is everything to me. So he like didn't only save my life, he saved my, my worldview. So I, yeah, I don't know how to put that into words. I love everything about that. The, the, um, <laughs> Yeah, obviously that he saved you and you're here, but also that you're able to see that optimistic, hopeful, loving worldview because in large part because of him. Yeah. What do you hope people take away from your story? (laughs) Um, When I was, when I was really struggling, like when I was really in the thick of it, when I didn't feel like I deserved to be alive. I felt so alone in that. And so I hope that anyone who comes across this story is left with the idea that we are never, ever alone. And in particular, in the moments when we are in the most pain, we are not alone. I hear a story every day of someone saying like, this is my story. Our experiences are completely different. Our lives are completely different. We look different. We live in different places. But when I read your words, I know them. I felt that and I felt alone. And that's the thing. Like we're never alone. Pain is the one thing that every human being knows. And so when we're in the most pain, we're probably least alone. And I think there's something so... While that's so sad, right? It's sad to think that we all hurt. I think that there's so much hope to be taken from that. Because if I can get through it, even having told you how dark and ugly and painful and just horrific it was, I truly believe that anyone else can get through it. Thank you for your courage in sharing your story, your bravery and vulnerability and talking about the hard parts and the messy parts and just leaning into this new identity, which I very much see as service to others who are in their own pain or suffering. So for all of it, thank you. And, you know, thank you for your trust in me today. Of course. Thanks for having me. And um, thanks for listening and making it feel like a a space where I could talk about those things and even cry. Okay, we're going to do a quick lightning round. But before that, where can people find your book and your app, Trauma Brace? Yeah, um, my book, Terrorist Attack Girl, is available pretty much across digital platforms, but it's easiest to find on Amazon. The audiobook is on Audible, which 
I narrated myself. If somehow you still want to listen to another seven or eight hours of my voice, then you can grab the audiobook. And then, yeah, you know, we have this self help app for people who are struggling to process trauma to use the evidence based protocols that I used in my treatment for a teeny tiny fraction of the cost. So it's not about turning a profit, it's about making proper evidence based treatment tools available at a very affordable price. And the app is called Trauma Brace, and it's available on the Apple App Store. And we will link to both of those in the show notes. And if you follow us on Instagram, we'll have links there as well. So we're going to end with something light, a lightning round. Excellent. Favorite time of year, favorite season? Easily the autumn. I love autumn. I love when the colors change. I just think it's so beautiful. First thing you do in the morning... (laughs) What is the very first thing I do in the morning? Let my dogs outside? (laughs) And your new puppy? Yes. Best book you've ever read? Mm -hmm. (sighs) That's so hard. I love to read. One of the best books I've ever read is Salt in My Soul, which is I talk about in my book as well, but it just gave me hope at a time that I really needed some. And it's a beautiful and sad and compelling story of a young woman who lost her life. Binge-worthy show. Oh, man. I've been on these, like, um, recreation shows, right? So was it Inventing Anna on Netflix? And uh, the girl in the picture is just, yeah, these, like, crazy stories that are, yes, real, but they're stranger than fiction. Favorite way to spend a Friday night. Oh my gosh, I'm so lame. My favorite, favorite way to spend a Friday night is curled up on my couch watching like a terrible rom-com and eating takeout with my husband. Sounds good to me. (laughs) Best piece of advice you've ever been given? Oh man, ever been given? (sighs) One of my favorite pieces of advice is open every door you can for yourself so that you get to choose which one you walk through. So fitting for your story. (laughs) Thank you again. And I can't wait to share this with our listeners. Oh, thank you so much. Happy to be here. All right. Take care. You too. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard of Podkit Productions. Our composer and sound designer is John LaSala. And our associate producer is Tara Daigle. We would love to know what you thought of this episode and Maylee's story. You can share your thoughts on our brand new All the Wiser Facebook group and connect with other listeners in our community, who I adore. You can find the link in our show notes or on our Instagram page at All the Wiser Podcast. Thank you for listening. And until next time, take care of yourself and each other. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.